and welcome to Real Living Mind You. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Adrian Lee. Adrian, very talented musician, was a member of Mike and Mechanics back in the 80s and early 90s. He was a keyboardist. Adrian tells me how he first met up with Mike Rutherford and answers a question that's always been on my mind. Which Paul, either Paul Carrick or Paul Young, sang lead on the Mechanics songs? Now we all know Paul Carrick, member of Ace. He was in Squeeze, he sang Tempted. Paul Young, not the Paul Young who sang Every Time You Go Away and Come Back and Stay. A very talented Paul Young who tragically passed away way too soon. Before the Mechanics, Adrian toured with Toya, was in the band with a very talented Toya. Worked with Cliff Richard and his touring band. Collaborated with Space Monkey. Now, if you don't know Space Monkey, go check him out on YouTube. Guy's a character. Adrian tells me some great stories. Adrian's worked with Mark King from Level 42. Very talented guy, very funny guy, and he tells some great stories, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. Was producing um, sort of power pop records. Right. Um, um, and in fact, uh, that collaboration with Space Monkey, in fact, it's some it was pretty hilarious collaboration, actually, but that actually resulted in some some, uh, some springboards that went off in some some remarkable directions. You know, one thing leads to another, and right. it was uh, it, 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 I, we can talk about it, but that was a very interesting collaboration. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, he, 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 yeah, he seems like an interesting, interesting guy. guy. <laughs> he was an interesting guy. Yeah, he definitely seems like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to I'm find. I have a story. Whether it's, you know, whether it's worth broadcasting, but I will, I, I, I count it now while it's, while it's on my mind. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so sure. So we were producing an album. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to, right. So, so just Space Monkey, uh, Paul Godchild, in fact, his real name. Right. And uh, he was discovered by, um, by Mark Dean. Mark Dean was the, they used to call him the young genius who discovered um, Wham. Okay. George Michael and Andrew. Uh, Andrew you know, Ridgely. Good looking yeah. one. Yeah. Andrew Ridgely. And um, uh, this monkey wanted to, he was looking for a certain direction. Um, and I was kind of in that direction. And he asked me to produce him. Um, and I didn't realize there had actually been a laundry list of producers that had gone before me, um, who had all sort of, you know, had various levels of difficulty dealing with his various idiosyncrasies. Uh, uh, and uh, he would always get in, an ex- in quite a panic before um, recording a vocal, which is not unusual for an artist because, you know, it's a big moment. You're immortalizing your voice. And uh, you, you know, you wanted to be right, and he would be one of these people who would be particularly perturbed okay. before recording a vocal. One night, I was working in particularly hard, and just wasn't getting it. And um, at one point, he said, "Look," he said, "We may as well stop here, Miss, um, because you'll make me do this line again, and again, and again." He said, "But the fact is, no one's ever going to hear." It. And we got working on this album for months by the time. And I said, uh, why is that? And he said, uh, because the world's 
ending next week. Oh boy! So no matter what you say or what you do, no one's ever going to hear it. <laughs> so uh, I said to the uh, I said to uh, the engineer, uh, okay, I, I said I think it might be a good idea if maybe you left the studio for five minutes and let me just have a chat with with Paul. Right. So I said, come on, come on in. I said, what's going on here? He said, well, I, I, he said, I, I believe I'm a member of a certain group, he said, and, you know, we have it on good authority that the world is ending next week. The apocalypse is coming, and it's, you know, it's, it's you. So, so I said to him, Paul, I said, I understand this may well be true. I said, and, and, and no doubt, I said, you, you, you believe in, in an afterlife. And he said, well, yes, for some of us, for some of us, yes, for those of us who've trodden the right path. I said, okay. I said, well, if you believe in uh, the immortality, I said, and this vocal follows you into eternity with this out-of-tune line, I said, it's going to haunt you into the infinite. So my suggestion would be to get out there and get it right. So at least when the end does come, you can take it with you and not be too concerned about it forevermore. And it scared the crap out of him. <laughs> and he went back out there and he sung a blinder. But in of all the sort of the science to employ when producing someone, I think that one actually took the cake. But um, as you mentioned him, and I wasn't expecting his name to come up, right. as you mentioned him, that's one for the record, so well, to speak. Wow, that, that, that's amazing. I mean, that's like... That's definitely getting your your, your, your <laughs> producer background, you know, going. Wow, that's 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 wild. It was, yeah, no, it, it, it definitely that that resonated. It didn't matter what he wasn't concerned about, you know. You know, it was like the, the idea that it would that it was actually going after him forever, incorrectable. Right. <laughs> it was worth going out and pursuing. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, so so after the world, the, uh, yeah, so after the world ended, did you uh, work with him again, or that was just a one-off thing? <laughs> uh, no, he was surprised that we were still there next week. Right. And <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I think it, I think basically uh, he had it on good authority that it was that it, the, there'd been a delay of some sort, but it would uh, it was coming. It was coming. Um, yeah. It, it, it was coming. But yeah, you know, it was coming. Yeah, it's still coming, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's still coming, but I mean, I think I'd, I'd, at that by that time I'd found the I found the perfect, you know, fear factor right. for him, and uh, th you know, that circumnavigated his unwillingness to uh, to actually get out there and work a little bit harder. Right. Oh wow. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, he was he was actually he was one of these guys that was one step away from being a superstar at so many right. you know, ah, <laughs> oh, and you know. If things had gone slightly differently, the guy could have been, you know, major. He was, he, he was eccentric enough to really make a, you know, as as you know, those people with the greatest visual signature are. Yeah. And he was he was a reasonably good writer too, so he could have done something, but didn't. What? Yeah. Unfortunately for him. Yeah. Like, what? What do you think was like the issue that kind of like prevented him from being a superstar? Was it like? Was it himself, or was it just like people just didn't get him? Oh, I think that um, it was it, it was he he was um, he had some eccentricities, 
Right. And I think they revealed themselves rather quickly. And I guess if they work in a destructive way before you've established yourself, you're never going to get there. Most people go into self-destruct mode after they've actually hit it. Right. Uh, I think that's fair to say. Most people arrive, hit the self-destruct button, and then, you know, it was as a result of the success. Yeah. Couldn't handle it. Um, Paul was uh, Paul was Paul was marching to the to the beat of a, of a rather different drum. Right. And, uh, but he certainly had talent, and he was an interesting he was an interesting guy. And I really think that had things gone slightly differently for him, he could have done something. Right. Because that eccentricity would have resonated in a good way. Yeah, especially, you know, in the 80s during that time. And uh, Mark Dean had obviously, you know, he'd already broken, you know, one of the most the biggest acts on the, in the world at that time. And then George went on, of course, to become one of the biggest superstars on the planet as a solo artist. So, you know, Mark definitely had vision uh, as to what could... Uh, what, what could... Uh, what could work and what was worth it, what was worth putting in energy into. So the potential was there for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, come with me and on the beam, I think were two tracks that we did that actually, yeah, they they were kind of, you know, power pop club, club tracks with a, with a kind of a, uh, a contempt, well, a sound that was, uh, it was right for the time right and like I think one more shot was another one uh, now I think one more did I did have anything to do with one more shot that may have been Steve Brown okay. actually and Steve was Wham's producer oh okay and Steve had actually Steve had actually worked with Paul prior to myself right I think we actually swapped war stories at one point I'm sure know? I'm sure you both had plenty <laughs> <laughs> so what before we kind of look back, what are you up to these days? Um, well, I'm now based in Los Angeles. I moved over here in 1998, and I've been um, doing more work to picture since I've been here, uh, which was a you know was a tough thing. You have to kind of basically reinvent yourself. It's a very closed shop. But I was able to get uh, onto a couple of reasonable movies, and um, I love the whole discipline of working to picture. And it's something that I'm hoping to continue doing, uh, you know, so I can no longer do it. Right. Have you worked in any uh, recently? Um, Recently, I've been doing more work for China, and I had a um, a release, a theatre release in 2014-15 called Dragon Nest, um, which was um, a reasonably successful movie through China. They have a major burgeoning film market. In fact, um, they are, in fact, the world's number one film market now. There's a billion people there, and they want to watch movies. Um, and they're watching us very closely. Um, so they're doing co-productions with American companies. But really what they want to do is do their own movies and uh, sell them to their own people, present them to their own people. But they could do exactly what Japan did in the 80s, where Japan moved heavily into the entertainment business. 
you know, suddenly uh, CBS was uh, Sony and uh, all the major companies uh, were um, being run by uh, Japanese companies. The Chinese have the, the money and the technology and the enthusiasm to actually do it. So um, don't be surprised if you see you know, a lot more coming out of there over the next uh, over the next decade. Right. And even like with like American movies, it's it's so big now to hit that Chinese market. Um, yeah, but they want to do their own movies. Right, right. The thing, you know, if you can imagine, I mean, you know, there's a major cultural difference. I mean, there are commonalities. It's probably more now than, than, than ever. You know, American culture is pervasive. It, it, it you know, you see it in... in most corners of the world very often edited to the gills for the local market to make it presentable but um in china they've they've seen you know how america makes movies and they and they say we can do that and we can do that exactly in a way that will appeal to our home audience and they would rather do that so you know they see what the technologies are what the techniques are um perfect them and then make them which is not dissimilar from the way that uh, China handles other products that you see brought to market and they do it well I mean it's not like the products are badly made I mean once once they understand the technique as you know it's very difficult to go into a any kind of retail outlet now and find something that isn't made there and it's surprising how it can be manufactured and brought over here to the States, or in fact, most places in Europe, and and marketed at a profit and sold for so little money. Right. Yeah. And we'll see, we'll, I guess we'll see what happens with all the, the tariffs that are going to be uh, invoked with China's goods. So that should be interesting. Well, yes, but you have to remember that for them, they have a billion people right. in their market. They're not that bothered, <laughs> right? There's a, you know, that's a lot of people. Plus, they have an entire Asian market who are very interested in what they're doing as well. So, um, I mean, obviously, there are certain things that may have an impact. Um, but the fact is, you know, because labor costs are so cheap. I mean, we're into a sort of slightly different area of. Of our conversation it's not particularly i mean it affects the creative market right you know, on a you know on a, on a wider level so it's probably worth touching on um i mean one thing that really does affect us is the is how china deals with intellectual copyright and this is having a huge impact on uh, you know uh, on people who rely on earning money from the fruits of their talent and then China really doesn't, um, and that's 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 one area that, that really does impact um, the, the creative community around the world. Is that China has a very different, um, a very different concept of how intellectual copyright needs to be respected. Well, it's not really. Um, you know, it's the number one place for for knockoffs to come right. uh, to to arrive from, and it's. And it's a place that, that, that has no method for um, royalty collection. So it's a bit, 
you know, and, and, and until that actually establishes itself, until that's that, until that enters the consciousness of that culture, it's going to be a difficult place for um, for Westerners to actually make money out of out of out of the creative arts. Right. Um, that's just the, the hard facts of it. Yeah. Have Have you personally uh, been affected by that or no? Um, yeah, I have, for, for sure, because it can be very difficult to get a film company in China to even even put into the contract that um, international royalties must be paid. Right. I think there may be a breakdown in understanding sometimes where I'm not, I'm not sure for you know the listeners understand how how royalties accrue for for composers and writers and musicians, but. Essentially, there are there are two or three income streams by which a, a composer can, you know, earn money from their work. Um, the primary one is through um, so-called performance royalties, and every time the music is performed live, whether it's you know reproduced in a movie theater, um, strangely enough, anywhere except in the USA, the USA theaters do not pay royalties. Uh, to composers tv yes theaters movie theaters no mm. um in europe um they do in japan they do um so it's a get um so it's that that is the responsibility of the broadcaster whether it be a theater or a radio station or a tv station they are responsible for remitting to a collection society of which there are collection societies in all these territories around around the globe in america we have ascap and bmi in the uk it's prs then there's jazzcap and australia has its own collection society canada this and they all liaise and they all remit to one another there's something that doesn't quite communicate in some <laughs> when you're doing in, in dealing with uh, sometimes with china where they make concern themselves that they are liable for that royalty but that's not the case at all it's simply that they have to be willing to tie the composer's work to their product to enable the collection societies around the world to do their job and remit to composers yeah. who, who are relying on that um, for their retirement I mean the work is often not 24 seven. Right. So royalties become a kind of a pension fund. Right. Um, uh, you know, unless you're the stone or the who, yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, you know, there are, there are a few bands that sustain a career through generations until retirement. Well, no, that's, that's really so, interesting. Yeah. Um, and royalties just, just, just that of it, you know, I mean, it, it if these these have only really existed it's a very small window that these that intellectual copyright has even been a has even been a um available before right. uh, composers were paid uh on commission by the church or by the aristocracy uh, intellectual copyright was was unknown so it's just this very small window that's opened up in the that opened up in the 20th century where it was uh, 
possible to actually earn a living out of your work. Anyway, I mean, it's probably an area of conversation that we, I didn't really think we were going to go down there, but right. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, no, that's, no, that's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. Just in terms of how it applies to the, you know, the most burgeoning market on the planet, which right. is China. Yeah. So that could have a big impact on musicians and composers around the world, in uh, right now and in the years to come. Right. Okay. So um yeah let's uh I guess happier times now um guess the you know start of your career and like what got you like involved in music and like some of your influences growing up. Um, I was always a music crazy kid. I just loved it. My parents were extremely encouraging, and my grandparents too. Um, a piano arrived in the house um, when I was, um, I think, uh, five or six, um, and started a formal classical education. Um, then picked up guitar at twelve mainly because some kid arrived at my junior school who was oh it was actually it was about actually it was 10 or 11 i picked up i picked up guitar some extremely good looking kid arrived at junior school and all the girls were just totally besotted with the guy because he played guitar and i thought right i'm not having any of that so i thought i better learn a few chords and uh that was the total reason for picking up the guitar <laughs> and uh uh on uh, leaving high school, um, my high school band was pretty much immediately signed to um, Phonogram Records. We were managed by the original keyboard player from the Small Faces, a guy by the name of Jim Winston, okay. who joined the band before Ian McClagan, I think played on Sha La 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 Lee, which was, I think, uh, their first hit and um, uh, he managed to get us into a few clubs I mean we were too young to, to drink in those clubs mm -hmm. let alone play in there I mean he right. got us he got us into the, he got us into the speakeasy which was like the major London sort of rock glitterati club all the major rock bands used to go there into the wee hours of the morning uh, to, to hang out and drink and Hendrix would go there and you know Zeppelin would go there the Who would be there it was just an amazing place the speakeasy and uh, we came to the attention of the guy who ran the club a guy by the name of Laurie O'Leary and um, Laurie decided to sort of, uh, uh, move in on the band and uh, it was he who got us our first record deal with Phonogram um, we were earning the princely sum, I think, of uh, five pounds a week. Um, uh, was that for the whole band I, or just you? <laughs> uh, it was. Oh no, that was each. So oh, okay. It was, it, we were we, we were living high on the hog. Right. That, you yeah. know. Uh, our parents weren't particularly thrilled, but we had a record deal. Right. <laughs> and uh, and our first uh, and our first, and our producer was uh, was Mutt Langer who was the house producer for Phonogram at the time, oh. uh, who, um, as you may know, went on to become yeah, one of the world's yeah. most prolific producers. Yeah. And um, you'll be pleased to know that what he did for us 
did not add to his. Um, <laughs> I don't think we appeared it's... anywhere on a CV. Right. <laughs> I don't think it was. It would not be necessary to recount the. Uh, you know, uh, I think the band's name was Red Hot. Um, we were we were a bit more like lukewarm. I think we were you know eighteen years old. Right. Um, it was punk was just hitting. And we wanted to be sort of Steely Dan, I think she thinks. Okay. The bass player actually recounted to me years later. I thought it was a fairly astute way of looking at it. I mean, you know, we were we were pretty rudderless. So, you know, it was a few months there, um, uh, thinking that we'd arrived. Nothing happened. The band's off the label. And, uh, uh, and then we broke up. But everyone in that band, bar the drummer, actually went on to do stuff i mean it, it was quite remarkable um uh what came out of that little uh school get together um our bass player ian maidman um who is now you could actually find um it's still extremely well known and respected but you know him as her as jennifer maidman these days and jennifer um became uh, an extremely successful uh, bass player um, writer he produced Boy George ba uh, back in the 80s he's still out playing, he's out on the road with uh, with Murray Head was with okay. the Penguin Cafe Orchestra extremely talented young guy and then um, Steve who was our, Steve who was our keyboard player at the time uh, well we all played keyboards and different instruments but Steve was like officially the keyboard player um, and uh, co-singer and then Steve went on to uh, to perform in the infamous Eurovision Song Contest I'm not sure if you know about the Eurovision Song Contest no I don't it's infamous okay and it reached and, and, and it hit the news big time recently because last year the, the winner of the competition goes on to uh, the winning country hosts the competition for the next year okay and last year israel won the competition it's eurovision but somehow israel competes in it in fact they've won it several times okay and the uh, and the competition was scheduled to take place in um in jerusalem and then of course there was a hell of a stink because there was you know all this bds stuff going on right and they moved it to tel aviv and uh it became to become a very political hot potato but uh, ostensibly it started off as a, a, a competition between European countries it was televised all over Europe and at that time the, each country would actually put major stars in to perform the song that was submitted for their country and then there was a vote um, at the end uh, famously um, Norway I think on two occasions got zero point um, from the uh, they managed to do it I think on more than one occasion you got zero zero votes from all the other competing countries <laughs> I think it's a record never been equaled right. but Steve ended up performing in the Eurovision Song Contest as the uh, representative um, for the UK um, and in fact uh, Eurovision seems to sort of um, loom large at, at some points in, in, in my history because there was an infamous uh, situation that I had with a band that I produced with uh, a guy who, who 
who was the engineer on my very first record, we became production partners in the 80s and 90s um, by, the name, by the name of Tony Taverner, a great engineer. And uh, Tony and I partnered up to produce, and we produced a band called Heavy Petting, who were like a, who were like a kind of a, a heavy metal sort of big hair rock band. Great bunch of nutcases from Scotland. <laughs> and they were managed by Brian Lane, um, Brian Lane, he who manages uh, or managed uh, Yes and ELP and uh, uh, generally known for being involved with progressive rock bands and he managed Heavy Petting and we finished this album and it was a pretty good album and um, he had a brainwave and the brainwave was that Heavy Petting were going to enter the Eurovision Song Contest with the one ballad of the album right now it has to be said, Eurovision had a pretty grim reputation amongst sort of well, how can I just call it? It was it was seen as a seen as very kitsch and not something that if you were serious okay. you wanted to be involved with. Right. So Brian has this great idea. Oh, I know we're going to put you in for the Eurovision Song Contest. They're like, you know. Uh, Brian, you're crazy. You know, you're crazy. You know, Henry Patton, we're not going to go and sing a bloody Univision song contest. Anyway, he convinced them, and he convinced Polydor as well. And they went on uh, doing this song called Romeo. Um, you can probably find, could probably find it on YouTube. <laughs> and um, the singer realised before they went on, it was like it was like a huge mistake, and that they were completely undermining their their fan base um, and uh, it was a bit of a disaster and I believe that after they finished their performance in the in the um, in the runoffs to become the song for the UK um, he went up and took a swing at the head of his record company oh, wow. ended up flat on his face and uh, uh, and then heavy pen were off the label and that was the end of another your, sorry, sordid Eurovision Song Contest story. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> such is life. Wow. <laughs> I believe the uh, I believe the head of Polydor said to him, "Better luck next time." Yeah. <laughs> but they're playing live now. I mean, they've they've reformed to go and play some gigs in you know in the UK. I think they've been out recently, and they're a great bunch of guys. And uh, you know, again, it was another one that, that got away. I mean, they could have been like a kind of a Scottish Bon Jovi for sure, right. no doubt about it. Wow, that's great, great writers. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story. Well, I've jumped forward a lot. I've jumped forward. Um, so essentially, you know, guitar playing band since the first record deal, get out of the record deal, looking for the next deal. I started to play sessions around London. I was heavily involved with um, the Roland Corporation, um, uh, who make synthesizers and are still very significant um, manufacturers in that market and um, they approached me to market um, some of their fledgling products they were quite a new company all around Europe and it gave me access to a lot of tremendous technology um, and one piece of that technology was um, one of the first guitar synthesizers that ever was produced um, and uh, I became um, quite well known 
for using the instrument. And I found myself, I think at the age of like 19, uh, being approached to go and see Hank Marvin, who was an extremely well-known British guitarist um, from the late 50s and through the 60s and even still today, um, who was the guitarist in Cliff Richard's band, okay. The Shadows. And Cliff was Britain's eldest. Right. So I used to have this rig that, you know, I could play one chord on this thing and it just sounded like, you know, sounded like the heavens had opened and the gods were, you know, it was just, the, the sound was just amazing. I mean, it took an enormous amount of trickery because the fact is, without all the gubbins that I had hidden away, it actually sounded like a very nasty harmonium. But given the right kind of treatment, it, it could be quite convincing. And I think I played three chords on this thing for Hank and Cliff's manager put his head round the corner and said, young man, what are you doing in three weeks? And I said, well, I, uh, and he said, you're on tour with Cliff, Australia, Hong, Hong Kong and Australia. And I was on, out on a major tour, which was remarkable. Um, and uh, I remember opening up in Hong Kong the first night we, we opened up there and he had, and still does, a huge following. Right. It was an enormous star everywhere, in fact, but the United States. Um, although he had two significant hits in the States, which uh, you may remember. Um, the first one was a song called Devil Woman. Right. And, and the other one was We Don't Talk, we don't talk anymore. anymore. Yeah. Right. But um, he was such a big star everywhere else, he wouldn't come out and tour here as sort of second stringer. So he, he, you know, he didn't come out here and, and, and it was a bit like selling coals to Newcastle, as we say, <laughs> right. still to Pittsburgh. I don't know. And, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, so he was huge everywhere else. He didn't need to come out and slog here. And he had his couple of big hits here. He did it. So we were out on tour in, in Australia, Australia and Hong Kong. I remember in Hong Kong playing the opening us to a song called Move It but with a guitar synthesizer playing those opening notes and thinking to myself wow I was I was one with one year old when this was a hit <laughs> and uh, I went out and played uh, as his guitarist for a couple of tours then I got fired as his guitarist uh, ostensibly for not standing still on stage okay. I, I really didn't get it that you know you didn't you couldn't be sort of running around the stage like sort of and yeah uh, and you know you, you were meant to wear these blue suits which or the lighting of which turned them black so right. you were at the back of the stage and meant to be heard but not so so now they tried to nail my feet to the floor you know <laughs> young hooligan yeah um, and they brought me back as the keyboard player okay. because they thought that so you know they could control me there right <laughs> so I, I hold the record in fact uh, I'm the only person to have been sacked from Cliff, Richard, Cliff Richard's band twice <laughs> on two different instruments. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's never been equaled by another musician. Yeah. I um, I interviewed uh, Glenn Shurek, you know, lead singer of the Little River Band, who was performing as a backup singer for Cliff Richard like many years before I think you were in there. And he, he got sacked because, you know, a tremendous singer. I guess they thought, or Cliff thought, that he was kind of overshadowing him. Cliff in the shadows. 
that's the way it goes. Right. No, I mean it's you know it, it's Cliff's thing, but you know some of the guys who were in that band made absolute careers out of being in that band. Right. I mean people people like Tony Rivers, um, my friend Clem Catini, who was the I mean. I, I remember Clem said to my father at the airport as we left, he said, don't worry, Mr. Lee, I'll look after him. And he did. Actually, he was like, you know, he was like my, my mind and sort of tried to keep me out of trouble yeah. rather unsuccessfully by the sound of things. <laughs> but Clem was the original, he, he, Clem was one of two drummers who were, you know, the two drummer band of one which of, of which one was Clem Catini. And Clem is one of the most historic historically significant drummers to come out of the UK he was the drummer in the Tornadoes who had a huge hit with Telstar produced by the infamous Joe Meek who blasted his landlady with a shotgun down the stairs oh, wow. of his studio on the Holloway Road they made a movie about his life in which Clem was portrayed I think by James Corden um, you can find the movie but um, I've had the pleasure of having dinner again with with Clem in recent years. A great guy, and uh, there were people who made who made a living out of being in 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 that band. You know, fortunately for me, I was able to get in, have the experience, young, get fired twice on two different instruments, <laughs> right, and then move on. And then from the sublime to the ridiculous, really, I'm not going to say ridiculous. It was just, but it, 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 I, you know, Cliff's thing was like a very kind of straight middle of the road thing I mean he was even doing gospel tours um, uh, which I'm like hooked up into uh, which is pretty unusual for me really but uh, anyway uh, uh, after that um, I ended up uh, joining in sort of w what would have been close to an out and out sort of punk band right. Toya right that's right and that could not have been a more different thing. Hmm. But that was a band situation. Um, Toya and I, uh, still friends after all these years, 1980, 81, was a great creative time for us. We made a great album together, um, which the band and Toya wrote. The album went to number two in the UK charts. Anthem, um, right? I beg your pardon? Anthem, correct? Anthem? Yeah. yeah. And we had several hits off the album.
myself and Nigel Block Lacombe wrote one of the big hits that came after that, which was called Thunder in the Mountains, um, which uh, which I think went to, went to number three or number four in the UK charts. And um, I had the pleasure of seeing Toya again in Gibraltar a couple of years ago, and she was out performing acoustically, which was such a departure all these years later, playing the songs that we've done all those years before in a certain setting and now performing them acoustically in fact in an amazing environment in a cave oh, wow. with stalactites and stalagmites it's the most amazing acoustic in this place and bands that come to Gibraltar to play this is like the, the venue to play and uh, she was wonderful and uh, she it was actually the perfect way to hear her voice in this, in this day and age um, but she and I did did quite a lot of work together, including a project, a TV project with um, Richard O'Brien, he, he of Rocky Horror Picture Show fame. And we did a TV show which he was involved with back in the back in the 90s. So we, we stayed connected through the years and um, still say hello um, occasionally. She's, of course, uh, Mrs. Robert Fripp these days as well. Um, All right. She married Robert Fripp of... Uh, of King Crimson, and I mean the connections are, are I mean it's as, as one goes through one's career, things sort of start to connect because King Crimson's drummer was Bill Bruford. Bill Bruford played with Genesis, which probably brings us to the next <laughs> stage of the story, right? Which which is that uh, after Toya, I was then doing some production work. Um, and uh, 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 I was also um, producing a lady was going to be who came to be my wife was uh, Lorna Wright. Uh, um, was uh, we made an I made an album with her with Toya's producer. Um, I'm just trying to tie up all the all the <laughs> loose ends here. Right. Um, was that but, the uh, was that uh, Toya's the producer? I'm sorry. Uh, was that the uh, the musician musician? Was that your um, solo album? And that was something that followed. Uh, that was something that followed afterwards. Okay. Uh, Lorna was signed to Radio Choice. She was an American. Is wasn't uh, an American artist who signed to signed to a UK record company, Radio Choice, which was Tony Basil's company. Okay. And they their whole thing was like they were they were like a big company and they. Basil on the back of the uh, uh, key video, uh, and um, they were going to do the same thing uh, for Lorna, but unfortunately, the company bankrupt just has finished her her album, and uh, there was some, there was some great stuff on that, and all of the top about played on that album, uh, which never really saw the light of day unfortunately um, but then uh, Toya, Toya moved uh, producers and she was produced by Chris Neal um, who was a well known pop producer right. and I was asked to come write some songs on, on the new material that Toya was doing with uh, with Chris and then Chris asked me to come in I didn't know Chris at the time he asked me to come in and actually um, make the tracks because he liked he liked um, my demos 
So he said, come in and talk in on the demos. Let's put it on the record. So uh, we went into, uh, I think it was Action Studios in London. And um, that's where I met Chris, who then said to me, listen, he said, um, I'm about to go and do a Mike Rutherford solo album. Um, we're making the album Montserrat in the Caribbean. Do you fancy doing it? And I was like, that sounds like a good holiday. <laughs> so um, a few weeks after that, um, myself and Peter Van Hook, right. who I met on those toy sessions as well, was like the maestro of electronic drums at the time. Pete, you know, very into the technology that was just about to break. The, the technology was, was going through a real um, metamorphosis um, in this this was a new generation of instruments were coming at that time you could specialize in this extremely expensive technology um, and it was a very exciting time to be sort of making this type of music um, we shipped a ton of gear out to Montserrat to make like rather solo up and uh what happened there was that uh, uh, we were putting some, some beautiful tracks and uh, Chris said, um, you guys hang out by the pool. He said, we're just going to go and try some vocals with Mike on a couple of the tracks today. So uh, Pete and I sit around the pool for a couple of hours and then Chris walks out of the studio looking a bit like that character Beaker from the Muppets. <laughs> he was the assistant to the mad professor in the Muppets. Right. The guy was always getting blown yeah. up and his hair was always Doc, standing yeah. on end. Dr. Brunson Burner. <laughs> Chris looked a bit like that. And, but that, uh, and he listened. He said, um, This isn't going so well. So we've decided that we're going to pull some scissors in when we get back to London. So let's just carry on making the tracks. So uh, we continued. Um, um, in the meantime I had actually flown back early because I was I actually um, signed Lorna to Mark Dean's record company okay. Mark Dean the name that I mentioned earlier with regards to Space Monkey Mark really liked what Lorna was doing and there was one particular kind of, um, sort of high energy club song called Peace Woman and uh, we made this enormous production, this police woman track, and um, a quite ill-advised video that was a bit X-rated when it <laughs> should have been a bit more Batman. Right. And uh, uh, so we were busy building a studio and making um, making Lorna's records at that time. The, then I get a call to come and finish the tracks for Mike and the Mechanics. So at that point, um, I went to Fisher Lane Farm, which was the Genesis studio, um, where um, Mike and Tony Phil uh, have amazing recording facility where they record their own albums, um, a world-class facility. And uh, we, finished, uh, we finished the recording uh, in the old studio there while we were finishing the new Genesis studio on the other side of the actual studio area. And uh, 
and that's when I heard Paul Carrick's voice coming out of the speakers over the top of the tracks. And it was just fantastic. Just fantastic. And then Paul Young. Not the Paul Young wherever I lay my hat. Right, young. right. That, 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 you know, we had our own Paul Young yeah. in the bank, Sad Cafe. We had a couple of hits. Um, every Day Hurts, I think, was... Uh, every Single Day Hurts. It was, a, it was quite a big hit in the States, actually. And they were tremendous men. And they were produced by um, Eric Stewart of 10CD which is going to create another connection, which I'll come back to right. in a second. Um, but all singing on the album, and, and another singer who I look to know, but who has a beautiful voice, and who sang on probably one of my um, favorite, like in the mechanic tracks of that album, which is a track I hope you can find it, actually, because I particularly love the keyboards on that track, it's the arrangement on it. And... Uh, and the guy's voice and it's a song called You Are The One. Yeah, it's on, it's on the first that, album, yeah. I think it's a song you might like. Oh, it's great, yeah. It's on the first album. It's so, um, it's, on, it's on the first album. Yeah. Anyway, we finished recording this, and then um, it was still Mike's solo album. And then uh, we went, We Mike asked us to, to, to get together to do, it was, I think it was a, a video or something, we got together and Mike said look this is painfully not a slow album anymore everybody has made their contribution to the record 
uh, and of course the you know the singers he said it just doesn't feel right for it to be a solo album. he said I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of making it into a band situation would anyone have if I called it Mike and the Mechanics and we all sort of shrugged and said you know your baby do right. you know knock yourself out and the next thing that happened was the siren running all of its own volition yeah went up the charts in America Unexpected. I don't think they had any promotion from the record company. I don't think they were particularly interested. Um, which would have been Warner Brothers at the time. And um, 
But, of course, having the management and genesis behind us, Tony Smith and that whole organisation is powerhouse. And Tony was always a great one for, right, you got to tour. And the record went up the charts. And then um, uh, All Ladies and Miracle right. charted. Yeah. And we were and we went on tour. And that was it. First Mike and the Mechanics tour in 1985. And it was completely unexpected. And we were playing to, um, I don't know, between seven, ten thousand seaters, something like that. And people were coming to, to see us and knew all the music. We barely had enough material to get through the set. We had one album. Right. So we were pulling material previous solo levers. And then Paul would perform. Um, uh, uh, songs that he'd had success with I think we did have because Paul obviously Carrick had been in Ace yeah. and had this huge and international hit with the longest has been oh, going on right. and, and Squeeze. of course he yeah. had his tenure with Squeeze right. so we uh, we played uh, Tempted as well Okay. we were struggling for material right. um, but we actually got through and um and then uh, a couple of years later, the pandemic all happened again. Yeah. Now, did you think back together? Yeah, another album. In, now, did you think like and, you guys uh, would? That album was the live. Album was the living years. Yeah. Now, before the living years, did you think that you guys would put out another album? Because you know, Mike went back to with Genesis, and they had you know the Invisible Touch, a huge, huge hit record now did you think that you guys would kind of be left kind of waiting on the sidelines for Mike to return um, I don't think we had particularly any expectations right um, uh, I think it, uh, it it was hard to know what it was going to be I mean, we went out and worked to tour an album that was a success we weren't expecting. There were, I think, three reasonably successful tracks off that first album. Two big hits, and then one that was sort of a minor hit. Oh, taken in, right? Um, uh, taken in, exactly. Yeah. Um, the videos were getting some sort of notoriety. We had the same uh, video producers um, who were with the Genesis videos. They kind of created this um, this whole backstory around us, which was that we had this manager, right, this yeah. uh, humbling manager, who was played by a much-beloved character by the name of Roy Kinnear, who was in many British movies, and even if American audiences don't, uh, don't recognize him, if they saw his face, they'd go, oh, that guy. And um, so it was always like, you know, us getting into trouble, you know, and the manager trying to pull us out of trouble, unsuccessful. So um, there was still sort of backstory being formed. And then by the time, uh, uh, I just, um, it must have been 1988, I think, we must have started to record, um, we must have started to record uh, the Living Years album. Uh, because the living is, I think, was a hit in 1989. So it was either 87 or 88 that we started to record it. 
and by that time we were sort of a bit more sort of organized right we they knew a little bit more about what what the band was and what the sound of the band was supposed to be you know and Mike is such a remarkable writer I mean people people tend to think that you know the original Genesis the Peter Gabriel lineup I mean Gabriel is such a an astounding performer people tend to sort of put a lot of uh, of eggs in his basket but Mike and Tony were significant writers and when you listen back to some of those early Genesis albums I mean the the depth and the breadth of their writing was remarkable and Mike was able to bring a more sort of uh, well I suppose probably as a result of Genesis having gone the Phil Collins incarnation right. Mike was able to bring a sort of a more pop sensibility to Mike and the Mechanics and um, and an event happened over the previous year that probably determined the success of that album which was that both he and D.A. Robertson who was his primary co-writer right. who funnily enough was also a guy who was co-writing a lot of songs for Cliff Richard at the time that I was working with Cliff and in fact I played on D.A. Robertson's solo album so the connection there um, with him uh, the, the event both he, both Mike and and Da Robertson lost had recently lost their fathers, and the result of that was a, a song called "The Living Years," right. which had a profound effect on a lot of people. Uh, the lyric is so poignant and talks about the. the uh, uh, the things that one never gets a chance to say during the living years, which, you know, as the, as the lyric says, I wish I would have told him in the living years, because it's too late when they're gone. And people would be coming up to some airports and whatever, you know, in tears, telling stories, you know, I listened to some, that's my story, that's what happened to me, my father, with my mother, everyone who kind of relates to it in some way. I think so profound was the was the message of that song that it propelled the album to to number one and the single from number one in that effect. And then the song was nominated for a Grammy that year. That's all we've got 
You say you just don't see it He says it's perfect sense You just can't get agreement In this present tense We all talk a different language Talking in defense Say it loud Say it loud Say it clear Oh, say it clear You can be As well as you fantastic but it's like with that song you think the, the whole album is very you know I don't want to say depressing but like a very mellow but the rest of the album is, is a pretty upbeat album yeah um, I, I mean Mike really and, and Chris the producer really understood the, the way to balance things out right you know, although I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take some responsibility for the sonics of, of certainly the first two albums, Chris very generously would point at me and say, that guy over there, he made that first album, and I, 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 <laughs> which is a very generous thing because, like, you know, no songs, no album. But, you know, in, in, the, in the role that I played, which was to bring a, a kind of a sonic character to what we were doing and you can only go from point A to point B if 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 the people you're dealing with in the studio can't get you there there's, there's simply no way to describe sonically really what you need at that core level, the sounds are either going to arrive or they're not and you need to have an innate understanding of what's needed and what's right and to go to places that are maybe uncharted territory that were unexpected and of course it was very hands-on synthesis at that time um, we're making sounds from the ground up um, 
it wasn't too long afterwards that a generation of synthesizers arrived which was based ostensibly on presets and then you began to hear the same sounds occurring on records you know the same bass sounds the same uh, bell sounds they were like sonic was very definitively of the late 80s as people basically thumbed through the presets and went oh that one and it would be the same sound that you heard on the other guy's record because people didn't have the knowledge to get in there and actually manipulate these machines um but at the time we were making those records uh, uh those first couple of albums we were essentially constructing the sounds in the studio and you know i'd be starting with a palette of zero and and the sound would would come from there so unless you have a an innate understanding of where you're where you're going how you're going to produce you know and it is it, it it's you know you're producing at that point uh, it, usually the, you know the keyboard players of that generation you're sitting behind the board with a with a ton of equipment including the kind of sound processing processing equipment that would have been the province of purely recording engineer up until that time and now you're in control of all that as well and to all intents and purposes providing that sound to the engineer and saying there it is it playing record <laughs> Right. Now you guys had two like fantastic singers in the band, but you know both Pauls. How um, how was determined like which Paul would sing which track? Um, I think it became apparent really quickly like what was going to be um, a Kara song and what was going to be Youngy song, as we used to say. Right. Um. Because obviously, if you said Paul, you know, to exactly. people would turn that at the same time. So, uh, uh, Paul Young tended to get the, the more hard things of rockier stuff, but you got to listen to Tiffany and hear his beautiful vocal on that to know that he would have been producing the most sensitive, heartfelt vocal. And delivering it, and Paul Carrick, what can what can say? I mean, Paul Carrick is still at the Albert Hall in London. He has one of the most golden voices ever to come out of the British music industry. It's it just, it's just golden. Um, in many ways, he's like, you know, if you listen, he's almost like a British Marvin. Hey, it's the, the, the soulfulness, the soulfulness of his voice, and he's a great keyboard player too. Um, so by the time we got to the third album, Paul was starting to sort of shares and duties more on stuff that needed sort of Hammond and whatever. That was his kind of forte. Right. And he had, um, and he released and like his solo album. That kind of texture. Yeah, and he released a solo album between your guys, second and third. Yeah. Yeah, great, great solo album. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just a huge, a huge, and um, but it was. I don't think it was. It was not. I don't think it was generally not a hard decision to uh, to determine for, for 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 Mike and Chris to determine who was going to be singing what, and then you know, 
hearing the vocal. I mean, that wasn't a decision that that, that, that I would have been part of. Right. Although, uh, apart from an aside, like, yeah, that's a great song for for Carrick or for Young to, to sing res- respectively. I don't, there was ever a mistake called. Mm. There was never a song called where you thought, you know what, that would have been better off had the other one sung it. Yeah, was there ever a time so, where, like, say, Carrick wanted to sing a, a young song or vice versa? I, it was never an issue, ever. Okay. okay. Ne- ne- never came up. They had plenty to sing. Right. And especially, you know, by the time we had the second album down, now we had, you know, two albums worth of material uh, to call on. We weren't, we weren't, rec- we weren't, uh, Required to uh, to pull up uh, to dredge up material from other sources, apart from one funny thing that we did on our on our second tour, um, which was we got a call to um, to do the closing track from I think it was a Cheech and Chong movie. Okay, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the movie, but they wanted us to do. A version of the Beatles Revolution and um, we went to the studio into the Maison Rouge studio in London with uh, an engineer called Tom Lord Algie who I think at the time was Mike's thinking we may change producers for the upcoming third album and I think just checking he's the brother is another Lord Algy Chris Lord Algy who's a very well known producer with mixing producer as well um, and it's one I think of the two or three Mike and the Mechanics that I play guitar on um, and we actually used to play uh, a bit of Revolution as an encore song okay. um, our version of it um, on the second tour but that would be the only kind of oddity from that but it was was us on this movie? I have no idea what. I know. I know it was a Cheech. I, I'm sure it was a Cheech and Tom movie. Maybe you can. Maybe you can find it somewhere.
I mean, I'll just mention this aside. I mean, there was just a couple of connections. Um, so I, Cliff, and I mentioned that the Paul Young right. um, had been produced by Eric Stewart. And it just so happens that by the mid-1990s, I was producing 10cc in my studio in London. And um, uh, Graham Gordon, who's been a, a long-time friend, and I were close in my studio and then and then Eric was doing own tracks in France and then came back and we finished off his tracks at my studio in London but there was a connection another connection there uh, and tangentially just after that uh, the first band broke up from where I was kicked off program I found myself in Strawberry South Studios uh, with Graham Goldman I think I was only 19 at the time, pleading with him to produce me, hmm. uh, which he flatly refused to do. So it was some with some irony that, uh, right. that years later, uh, Graham was in my studio and I was producing him. Yeah. So yeah. Did, did he remember that? Huh? For good measure. Yeah. Did he? Did he remember sure. that? Yeah, he did. Okay. I know. That's that's funny. Of course he remembered. Yeah. Of course yeah. he remembered. Okay. No. Yeah, you, you know, you don't, you, how often do you forget someone holding you over the neck, with not over, holding over the over, forward with a knife in your throat? You don't forget <laughs> those things. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So after you, you left. Oh, sorry, that was that was that was a poor attempt at humor. Oh no, it's totally fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you went, you ended up leaving the band after the third album or after the fourth album? The third right. The third album was a difficult album because there had been a chain of producer. Okay. Uh, I, I mentioned the uh, revolution right. track and that uh, Mike was starting to scout out other producers. The third album was supposed to be more of a cooperative album with more, more writing-wise from the band. I mean, we were all writers. Um, there was a lot of talent in that band. Um, uh, and then Russ Titleman came in to... Um, co-produce and Chris was off the album and at the time the band was reasonably happy um, with that you know Russ had made records that I really really liked I was enthusiastic about it um, it didn't turn out to be the happiest marriage um, Chris actually ended up coming back to finish the album off Without going too far into it, some damage was done during the album. Okay. And I decided that I was going to leave. Right. Um, Mike asked me to come back and finish the album. He said, you, it, after when Chris came back, um, um, Mike said to me, you, you may as well come back and finish your work, you know, um, which I did. Um, and then it sort of got pushed under the carpet a bit, you know, you know, it, it, it created some, it was, it, it's just unfortunate. The fact is, you know, we changed we changed horses in the middle of a race, right. which is never a great no, which is never a great plan. Right. And although there was some some good moments on that album, it it, it the expectation of it and what it, it, it became fractious, and uh, I, I think. Uh, I, I had no choice but to sort of s step away. 
and then by the time we got to the fourth album basically um, I, I had moved on to Pastures New and I was asked to come back and guest which I suppose is some testament to the fact that it wasn't it wasn't you know the the issues weren't necessarily between you know the fact that I went back and to come yeah. I can do that is a testament to the, to the relationship that I had with with Mike and Chris right. uh, otherwise I wouldn't have been there and that's all one really needs to know so I came back played in a few bits and pieces on that album um, uh, and then um, I was already looking um, to be moving back to the United States and I wanted to move to pastures new so um, and uh, all in all I think it was nine years my involvement back in the mechanics and that's that's longer than most people get to to be involved with the band and it was one of the most creative enjoyable periods of my life and if you're going to be in a band and you want to uh, make sure you do it at Genesis level because there's right. nothing quite like the, the machine that was behind that band it right. was just fantastic yeah. fantastic yeah. do you uh, do you remember where you were when uh you heard about Paul Young's passing? Yeah. Uh, I always been in touch with Paul. I, I knew Paul from before Mike and the Mechanics. Right. I knew Mike from before Mike and the Mechanics. We, we, we had met at various music trade fair things. So we were aware of each other. And I was... When we were out on the road, and I was always with Paul uh, and uh, and loved him and I, uh, I actually got him and, and uh, you know he came down this you may remember I, I mentioned um, the project with Toya and Richard O'Brien right he Rocky right. Hall fame I had uh, Paul Young come down to sing the theme tune for that show, which was called The Ink Thief. It was a kid thing, but it was it was quite an exciting little show for its time. And it had good songs. And uh, Paul sung the uh, the theme tune uh, uh, with my wife at the time, Lorna. And uh, we stayed in touch. You know, we always would like get in touch with him, get him involved and stuff. And I think I would have been my home in, in London when the news came in. Uh, I, actually, uh, I'm just going to what do you remember what year, Paul, do, do you happen to have that, that date to hand? Um, you know, I, it's uh, July 15, 2000. Right, I would have been living in Lake Arrowhead in California okay. by that time. And um, I got a call from... I think it was Pete. I think it was Pete Van Hook. Right. And uh, I called uh, his wife, uh, Pat, who I knew very well. And Paul had just finished building a recording studio in Manchester and was really, really about to enter a creative phase in his life. That's to be said, Paul was a real party animal. 
uh, he he parted hard. Right. But you know he he really loved making music, and there was nothing he wanted more than sitting in his own studio um, making making Paul Young music. Uh, it was always a difficult thing for Paul because he'd had a hit, a couple of hits. This is Mike in the Mechanics. This is Mike in the Mechanics with Paul Carrick, which is not an easy gig to be a co-singer with Paul Carrick. Okay. It's not, not an easy gig. And it's not an easy thing when another guy called Paul Young comes down and becomes an international star. Oh, right, right. So your name is suddenly almost not your own anymore. And it was very common that people would say, oh, Paul Young, yeah, yeah. We'd be like, no, not that Paul Young. Yeah. And Paul, once Paul was a young was about to make his own music, his own studio. And he had a couple of weeks, I think, after finishing his studio, which he built in his home, it was great. And his wife told me he's so happy sitting in there doing stuff. One day they heard a thump from the bathroom. Paul's son ran in there, and his poor son was in the army, and was uh, so qualified in CPR, and you know, knew exactly what to do, and uh, couldn't revive his father. He had a huge heart attack. By the time the ambulance arrived, he'd gone. So young, he was he was great, poor young. He, he you know, and uh, it's a shame that. He couldn't. He couldn't do it on his own name. You know that was. A, you can imagine that's a hard thing to live with. Right. Yeah. The other, the other Paul Young. Huh? You know, tough. Yeah, no, it's, it's terrible. But anyway, it's been many years now. Yeah, yeah. It's been many years now, but anyway, he's, you know, at least you know the fact that he's got great work that lives on in the stuff he did with Sad Faye. And uh, you know the great track that he sang with with Mike and the Mechanics. Yeah. He, he, um, so I'm going to tell you a, I'm going to tell you a, I'm going to tell you a quick Paul Young story from Mike and the Mechanics when we were touring on the second uh, on the second out uh, um, first album actually it was the first album and all I need is a miracle had been a huge hit in the states and we were playing um, at a racetrack in San Diego, Del Amo racetrack. And the way they set it up, you have the uh, you have the stands on one side of the track, then you have the track. And on the other side of the track, like in the center of the race course, they set up stage facing across the, across the track and into the stands. And the audience is all the way from the stands across the track. And uh, uh, as is very often the case, um, people with disabilities um, are given priority seating in the front rows. And Paul um, would do a great, a great wind-up for the beginning of uh, All is a Miracle. The drums would start. Paul, Pete, Pete would sort of lay down the drum rhythm. And Paul would start to sort of get in there with, like, all I need. All I need. And the drums would build... All I need, and the audience knew what was coming. All I need, and to get to this crescendo after about a minute of this build-up, all I need is a miracle, and the whole place went nuts. 
to do with the song. And this one guy in the front row who was on crutches had a bit of a revelation, and he stood up, threw his crutches in the air, put his arms out, and then went, ah, and then sort of fell flat on his face. And it was a bit of an unfortunate <laughs> moment in, uh, in rock and roll history because, uh, unfortunately, uh, Paul was not able to provide the miracle right. that, this, that this poor gentleman so sorely needed. Yeah. I'm sure there where, you know, he was unencumbered. That's, that's really funny. That's funny, yeah. But, um, yeah, Mike, I guess, reformed the mechanics, I don't know, about maybe 10, 11 years ago. Was was there ever, like, did he reach out to you or Peter to join the band, or he just wanted to go in a different direction? Um, I hadn't really spoken to uh, to Mike for several years. I, I saw Peter, I think, maybe two or three years ago. He's in the, U he's in the UK. I'm uh, over here. Um, and I got together with uh, for lunch with him and Clem Catini, who I mentioned to you earlier. Right. Uh, and um, I might just put it together a new version of the band. I think. Um, I, I mean, obviously they're playing, going to play records that, that we made from the from Mike and the Mechanics of, of that time and I think they can still go out and pull an audience in because, you know, everyone wants to This um, is Mike Rutherford. Some, some songs are worth listening to. I believe that's quite the international profile that he did the first time around. Right. So, um, but... So, uh, yes, yeah, so I mean, I guess Mike likes to go out and play his songs uh, to an audience that still appreciates hearing them. And um, obviously, you know, what it was the first time around was, I, I would say, the real deal. But uh, as long as Mike's in the band, it's still Mike with whichever mechanics right. he has to hand, yeah. even if they're not the guys that made the records. Right. So. Yeah. Or, you know, the singers, too. Well, you know, unfortunately, you know, one of those singers yeah. will, you know, will, will not be seen again. And Paul Carrick, um, uh, you know, has a, uh, you know, a very thriving solo career as well. So, um, really, that kind of, to my mind, sort of defined um, a lot of what Mike and the Mechanics were about, because you had Paul Carrick and Paul Young at the front, and a certain sort of texture that was provided. Um, behind that um, so uh, but it's a lot of years now I mean when you think about the, you know, the number of years that have passed since we first recorded and we're talking what's 35 years isn't it yeah I know the time, time flies by it really does I'm a big level 42 fan and I know you've worked with both Mark King and then Mike Linup so I guess we'll start off with uh, Mark King first and you were in a band, uh, Reflex, correct, with him? Yeah, it was about um, 10 minutes we were in the, in the same band. Um, actually, quite a funny story. Uh, actually, Mike Lindup and I were, were not ever in a band together, but um, we knew each other because of Mark and because we both were using um, some technology that, um, that we were interested in, which kind of... Uh, 
you know, got us communicating at one point. Um, but the story with Mark is actually that um, uh, Mark and I actually first met when we were like in our in our sort of mid-teens. We were actually both working in a music store in the middle of London. And um, I always thought it was, you know, I knew he was a pretty talented guy, but had no idea really, you know, the extent to, to which his talent would, would, would really blossom. And um, so I have to forgive the banging and thumping in the background. That's okay. Listeners. Um, so um, uh, Mark and I met up a few years later when I, I had... Um, I think I'd come out of my first um, the record uh, deal um, with with Phonogram, and um, I came. I I heard that um, um, one of the guys who was a promotions guy at at, at, um, at Phonogram, our record company, was now working for EG Management, who were Roxy Music's management company. Guy named Alec Byrne. Remember the name. And um, I went to see Alec because I was a bit, I had a bit of a loose end. I, I, you know, I might want to try and find a band situation to get into. And EG had also, strangely enough, taken over Toya's management. So this may be just post-Toya. Actually, it was pre-Toya. I know it was pre-Toya. So um, uh, I went up to see, to see Alec and he said, look, he said, um, there is actually a band that I've got uh, I've just heard about that I, I think you you might be interested in. They're looking for a guitar player, and uh, you know it, it could be something that interests you. Um, and he mentioned a couple of names: Mark King, who I knew, and a guy called Paul Fishman, who I also had known for a couple of years. So it was like, okay, let's go and see what this is about. And I said to him, uh, he said to me, I've, I've got their demo tapes. Um, I said, listen, do me a favor. I said, give me their demo tapes. Don't tell them I've got the tapes. I said, all right, I got the demo tapes. And then um, an audition was set up and I spent sort of the week cramming on all the guitar parts and learned them all backwards. I mean, I just had the whole thing down and uh, went in, the, you know, for, for the ostensibly the audition that was set up in a rehearsal room in North London. And when in there was Paul and there was Mark. Oh, hi, fancy seeing you here. And a guy named John Baxter, who I still speak to, still friendly with. And um, uh, we started to play the first song. And of course, I just totally nailed it. I flew through it. They were like, wow, that was, that was, that was pretty good. And I was just, I was, having a huge laugh inside, knowing what I know, knew, and knowing what they didn't know. And we went through a couple more tunes, and I just knocked everyone out of the ballpark. And then we went into a fourth tune, and when we hit the, the guitar solo section, I played the first six notes of their old guitarist solo, which there was no way I could have known. <laughs> And then everyone stopped and I kind of looked at the wall innocently and they, you know, nothing was said apart from, you've got the gig. 
it was it was it was i mean i i let them in on the uh, i let them in on the secret later but um it, very soon after that mark actually uh, left the band um and they said to me you know he's a really great bass player he was playing drums right in in, in reflex and he was a phenomenal drummer and uh oh he mark's leaving he's got this uh, this other band they said he's got some other band that I think you know they might have a deal, and the next thing you know, Mark was in level forty-two, and they they kind of ex- exploded. But it was a great story to dine out on over the over whenever you know whenever we'd see each other right. over the years about that about that uh, audition, and then years later, um, like post Mike and the Mechanics, um, Mark called me up and said, "Look, I'm I'm doing you know Polydor of." of uh, have allowed me to do a solo album, and I'd love you to come and play on it. <coughs> Excuse me. So I, uh, I was more than happy to do that. <coughs> Rolled up at um, at Marcus Studios, I think it was in London, and uh, recorded some tracks on his album, which I think was called The Essential. Was it? Or Impressions? I can't remember exactly. Maybe you can find the album. But you know. He was playing everything on there apart from a few, you know, some of the keyboards and some other sort of solo parts. But for the most part, it was a true solo album. He was, you know, playing bass, guitar. He was a great keyboard player too. I mean, he was just an all-round, I mean, a bit too talented for this world, really. Right. How dare, how dare he? <laughs> but um, anyway, that was, uh, that was that. Yeah, I mean, they're like... I feel the band like hasn't gotten their due in America. I mean, I think in Europe they're huge, but here, you know, they're known for like two songs, where I think they should be much bigger. You know, um, it's another one of those situations. Like, it, it, oh, I mean, you know, it's, it's the comparison with uh, with Cliff doesn't really right. doesn't really hold up uh, um, in terms of uh, content, but in terms of you know, America already had that. You know, there was no shortage of kind of jazz fusion bands um, that kind of migrate into the pop world. And uh, uh, I, I, I suppose they had a, they had a pretty um, a, a good sound signature. You knew when you were listening to Level 42. Right. You know, and of course, you know, Mark's bass playing and his, and his singing. Um, but maybe there was nothing particularly different enough for America that, that you know, apart from those couple of uh, those couple of hits, probably I don't know, maybe Lessons in Love or something. Like, yeah, it? something about you. Yeah, something about you, which which basically you know made it on the on the on, on the merit of the of the songs alone, and not because people particularly knew who Level Forty Two were. Right. And. And we're buying the records just because it was the new level 42 record it just you know. um anyway i i mean you know i uh, i was very pleased to have had that uh, musical association with mark it, it it started when we were very young and probably never knew what was what was ahead of us and and he has done extremely well and he's one of the most amazingly talented people i've ever met and he deserves all the success that he's had yeah, and then you know you mentioned Mike Linup, who's you know also very talented. You know, plays keyboard. He's also you know. Mike sing- is great. Yeah. Oh, there's one particular track um, on this on the solo album, and I had um, I'd acquired um, 
a synthesizer that came, kind of became one of two synthesizers that were kind of my signature machines. Um, and that this particular machine was made by a German company, um, PPG. And um, it was, it, it had, it, it, it moved sonically outside the, 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 the realm of what we've been used to hearing from synthesizers. It was based on a slightly different technology and um, I really got into that machine big time. And on this one particular track, um, I, I nailed a brass sound that was just, I mean, if I say so myself, it was, hmm. it was great. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, I think after the session was, uh, you know, I mean, Mark must have, uh, Mike must have come into the studio and gone like, what's, what's that? And, Mark must have said to him, oh, that's Adrian's PPG. The next thing, you know, Mike was on the phone to me saying, uh, tell me about this machine. Right. And then, and then of course, he got one. <laughs> so, uh, but that, that was really, it, you know, we used to see each other, like, socially around London occasionally. But, I, 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 you know, Mike and I didn't really ever have any um, creative um, collaboration at all. Yeah, that, that's a shame because, you know, that would have been great. Well, it's unusual for for, for keyboard right. players to, to to sort of you know I mean there are exceptions but you know and of course there are bands that have been based entirely around keyboards right. and uh, you know uh, Mike was already well established yeah. in uh, level forty two and myself and Mike in the mechanics so it was uh, uh, we we were otherwise uh, you know otherwise employed as they say right. <laughs> I also want to ask you, because um, we, we didn't talk about it yet, was your solo album, The, the Magician. And, um, yeah, I couldn't couldn't really find it anywhere. And the only thing I was able to find, I found one song on, uh, on YouTube, uh, Blondes Aren't There.
just come off the back of you know pretty big success with Toya right and um, they were quite keen on the idea of me doing a solo album and um, I really I, I, I wasn't I wasn't ready for it and um, uh, it's just the that's the, that's the bottom line I wasn't ready for it I didn't have you know the quality of songs that I should have had I, I, I uh, made some uh, decisions about who I was working with that may not have been the, the wisest decisions um, and uh, it was a mishmash of non-defined uh, it, it, it was directionless uh, which is a shame I, I you know I, I if I had you know great management at the time and someone to, to creatively because I was I was pretty headstrong um, right but I but I had but directionless. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and what I wanted to do was be all over the place. Hmm. And um, uh, DJM put a major um, advertising push into the album when it when it came out, and um, they plastered my face on uh, as per the album cover, which was like uh, me dressed up in sort of a cape and looking sort <laughs> of. Uh, uh, vaguely Dracula-like, I right. suppose, on reflection. Um, in, f in, in fact, the funny thing was it was pointed out to me that during the photo sessions, I was actually wearing sort of um, grey sneakers, which kind of destroyed the illusion. It didn't, you know, <laughs> right. really. I mean, so you saw the upper part. But my face was plastered all over these London buses. And um, after the album tanked, um, I was fond of letting people know that um, as we hadn't actually sold any albums, I was probably going to be driving those London buses <laughs> if things didn't improve. But there were, I'd say, there were a couple of moments off the album. Um, and uh, Blondes Aren't Fair was, 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 was quite fun. And I think sported one, one uh, historic line of lyric, which which enabled me to, to rhyme the following lines. I'd like to marry Deborah Harry. <laughs> um, um, blondes aren't fair. Ha ha, look at my own words. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun song, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I mean, the, I guess the title is apt because you made basically made that album disappear, right? <laughs> yeah. That disappeared quicker than anyone could do out of a magician's cabinet. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no. That was the best magic trick of all time, really. Right. Um, and and many thousands of, uh, of uh, and many thousands of dollars into the bargain as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So like after. But it was fun. Yeah. And then, you know, um, on the back of that, all sorts of other wonderful things happened. Um, uh, so I, I, I have no complaints. Um, but it's a lesson, really. Right. Um, it, it's a lesson. Yeah. I mean, these opportunities may present themselves, but you have to be uh, you have to be prepared. You have to be you have to be ready to, mm-hmm. to handle the responsibility of making an album. And uh, I I can safely say, at this time of my life, I was prodigiously unprepared. Right. Did you ever think about doing another one, like say, like post Mike and the Mechanics, to kind of learn from your mistakes? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean, later on, I mean, my, my sort of solo efforts, uh, you might say, um, have sort of appeared in, in, in sort of movie scores. Right, So right. I'm quite, I'm you know, quite keen for my work to, to you know, to, uh, to be presented through that, through that medium. Um, although I came to the, I, I came to that uh, discipline, one might say, um, quite late in life. And um, on reflection, I would have probably, I should have probably come to the States earlier. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, at the time I was sort of coming up in London as one of sort of a clutch of sort of well-known keyboard players around town. Uh, uh, I suppose, you know, Hans Zimmer at the time was doing, you know, commercials right. in London. He was doing, you know, TV commercials. And he made that move at the right time. I think it's safe to say that was one hell of a one hell of a career move. But uh, Adrian, this this was fantastic. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I hope it was. I hope it was useful. And a special thanks to Adrian for joining me this week. You can follow me on Twitter at the first and all one nine. Be sure to like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes, not a problem. The show's on SoundCloud. It's also on Podbean. Go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. And we're going to end with my favorite Mike and Mechanic song, Take It In. <laughs>